The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. The trade union movement was founded to protect workers. Now it persecutes them. It stops them from working. It is killing jobs and it is bringing this country to its knees. I say enough. It's time to get up. It's time to go to work. It's time to put the great back into Great Britain. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 15, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where Dr. Salim Mansour, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Western University, joins us. And of course, Salim is also now a federal candidate for the People's Party of Canada in his riding of London North Centre. Which of these two hats will you be wearing today, Salim? A little bit of both, you think? <laughs> well, yes, why not? Uh, but thank you for having me, Bob. We'll get our conversation underway right after. I remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. And Celine, before you and I got together, I guess our attention was attracted to the same article by Conrad Black that appeared in the National Post on July 27th, talking about a strong and independent Britain and the North America and the world and Trump working to strengthen the Anglosphere. Did you want to expand on that and what you found so significant about Mr. Black's comments in this regard? Yes, in so many different ways, uh, the comment is very significant. What uh, Mr. Black is referring to, in the most immediate sense, is the special relationship that Britain and America forged together in the last century during World War II, the Atlantic Alliance that was between Great Britain in 1940 and the uh, United States under President Roosevelt. That special relation was the building block of whatever happened subsequently, first winning the war against Hitler and then putting into place the various institutions after the war, beginning with the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, the entire mechanism in institutional term that guided the world after World War II. From our vantage point, looking back, this was the most successful alliance that guided the world through the hazards both of World War II and then subsequently the Cold War between uh, uh, the free world led by the United States uh, and the communist world led by the Soviet Union. The end of the Cold War, again, was an achievement uh, under the leadership of the United States and uh, Great Britain mm -hmm. with President uh, Reagan in Washington 
Maggie Thatcher in Great Britain. And so now the reference that Conrad Black is making is with Trump in the White House and with the election of Boris Johnson in uh, Great Britain as the prime minister after what we might now quite accurately describe as the catastrophic failure of Prime Minister May, Theresa May, to execute the policy for Brexit. And she fumbled that completely three years after the referendum and Britain remained in the sense of the leadership undecided about how to do the Brexit while the people wanted Brexit. Now, Johnson's not out of the woods yet on this one, is he? Because he's got a challenge. I understand they just lost a, a, a by-election that now only gives them a one-seat majority. Is my understanding correct on that? That is true. The Conservative Party under May, which is what is now uh, Boris Johnson's inheritance, right. made a shamble of everything. Mm-hmm. And so this loss that you're referring to is a reflection of how poor is the opinion of the British people who in normal times voted for the Conservative Party and where the Conservative Party has come to in the European parliamentary election, for instance, that happened a month ago. Nigel Farage came back to lead the party for the European parliamentary seat and he trounced everybody. Both the Conservative and the Labour's were right at the he's, bo- at he's the bottom. He's a tremendous advocate of Western values and freedom, and, and it's just amazing what a spokesman he is. I'm surprised more people aren't aware of him throughout the whole Western Hemisphere, really. That's right, but coming back to Boris Johnson, yes, Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party is not out of the wood, but Boris Johnson is determined to execute Brexit, whether there is a deal or no deal, he has made it very clear, and the deadline is October 31st, and possibly there will be no deal, and Britain will exit from the European Union, and then that is the reference that Conrad Black is referring to. Exiting from uh, the European Union will restore that special relationship. I mean, Boris Johnson and President Trump is going to work out that special relationship that has uniquely defined what is the Anglosphere. The Anglosphere is the sphere made up of countries like Canada, like Australia and New Zealand, and then, of course, United States and Great Britain, the English-speaking world, coming together and have provided the leadership on key issues of both free market economics, freedom, individual rights. And that will be once again the focus and the thrust of both Trump and uh, Boris Johnson, hopefully. Now, another term that is often used, not the Anglosphere, but Western, the Western nations and Western values. I'm hearing talk now, especially in this politically correct world, that when we talk about Western values, they treat it as though it were some geographic definition. But it seems to me that when we're talking about Western values in the context of values, this is not a geographical description. And I was wondering if you might consider, for example, Japan today a Westernized nation, even though it's in the East. Would, would, would that be in the umbrella? Not in the Anglosphere, per se, but certainly... The country's been westernized in that sense. Is that an accurate description, or, or, or are we going out of the parameters of what would be considered the Anglosphere? Well, Western values, let's, let's 
talk about this a little little bit and 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 uh, in a sense unravel it by western values we mean the core cultural history of the western civilization how far do you want to go back to the roman empire right. the making of christendom then coming through uh, the medieval period into the modern time that is the renaissance the reformation the enlightenment values so all of that coming together converging together in making what is the modern western world which is the cradle of the modern western world is Europe in that sense right. or western part of Europe if you talk about it well it's interesting uh, because the word western obviously came from their geographic original location right. although one could argue that in terms of geography for example, California and Los Angeles could maybe not be called Western values anymore because we often hear the term the left coast, right? And it seems like they've abandoned a lot of what we would call Western values, but I don't know what you'd call them. You wouldn't call them Eastern values. Things evolve or devolve. Devolve, Things, yeah. It, it, that simultaneously, these are happening. Mm -hmm. Things are going through mutation, right. morph into different things. But let's stick to the principle, the Western value that evolved over, uh, at least in making of the modern world, as I said, you know, say 500 years from about 1500 to the 20th century, you know, so this block of time in which the Western world evolved. What, what was in that evolution that distinguished the West from the rest of the world. So you might say West and the rest of the world. Right. What distinguished the West was the birth of capitalism, the birth of the idea of individual rights and freedom, uh, the ideas of representative government, of social contract among the people. That Wh which were. brings me back to my question. Would it therefore be fair to say that any country, regardless of where it's located in the world, that adopts those values, would they be considered westernized? I, I would say, in in a sense, it would be that those countries that are not, in that sense, geographically West, that did not participate with the evolution of those values that was mm. experimented, you know, and that was adopted. By the way, through a lot of blood and gore, there were revolutions yeah. fought, there were battles fought, you know, there was a lot of both positive and negative things that went on in this 500-year period to which Japan is not privy to which India is not privy, to ah, which, you know, okay. China is not privy, you know, Indochina is not privy. These were also civilization. These were also part, parts of the world that have their own ways of looking at the world. So, 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 so you're the Western values, I mean, you know, the democratic representative government originates in the sense in the West, right. you know, the, fun the fundamental charter, the Magna Carta, the great charter that binds the ruler with the people and lays down the conditions in which the people have certain autonomy from the ruler and the ruler have to abide by that principle. You know, the ruler cannot get away doing whatever he wants because that led to when they try to get away with whatever they want, that is the sovereign power, the monarchy, the divine rights of the king, they ended up being decapitated, you know, both <laughs> Charles I or Charles II, you know, there was a, in, in Britain the Glorious Revolution, in France the French Revolution, the American Revolution. The cultural experience of being German is not universal. It is, in fact, quite unique.
One of the most jarring phrases I heard when speaking to Germans or reading German literature was the term, we Germans. There is no English proxy for this phrase. In England, it is never said, we English. The term sounds alien, dead on the tongue. It sounds like something a foreigner would say. Instead, if the English are to be self-referential, we do it in exactly the way that I have done it in this sentence already. We refer to ourselves as the English. I think these linguistic differences are very telling and at the tip of an iceberg, beneath which is the development of hundreds of years of divergent philosophies. It is no accident that the German method of self-reference is subjective and the English method is objective. Philosophically, the English have long been empiricists, stemming from the influence of thinkers such as Locke and Hume. To be empirical, one must strive to be objective, and attempt to remove one's own sense of self from what is being examined. English individualism gave rise to a worldview that is localised and centred on the individual, concerned primarily with those things directly associated with that person. Since the Magna Carta through to the English Bill of Rights in 1688-1689 and on to the modern day, an Englishman actually had political rights. A long tradition of constitutional limits of the power of government solidified the separation between the state and society in the English mind. It was most preferable for each man to be the king of his own castle and treat others with that mutual consideration in mind. You break into my house in the middle of the night. You dare do something like that and you'll get this. Make no mistake, you'll get this. As is my freeborn right as an Englishman, defend my family. I will defend my half, I will defend my family with my old regimental sword and the Crown Prosecution Service can go to the devil. It is not cruel to have border controls. It is not cruel to make the facilities at the border less than desirable from our perspective. It is not cruel to place children into a separate area while the parents are incarcerated for committing a crime or for their own protection against traffickers. Indeed, there seems to be little alternative. The entire question of the welfare of children, or children being separated from their parents, emanating from left-wing activists smells incredibly fishy to me. I could point out that the left runs the abortion industry, I could point out that it is the left that's covering up grooming gangs, I could point out that it is the left that is currently grooming children into becoming transgender, or it is the left that are eternally performing paedophilia apologetics, but that isn't really necessary. It is not from a concern for children that the left agitates against border controls. It is from the position of leftist anti-nation state agitation. The communists do not want borders, and they are seizing on anything they think you will find persuasive. We need to discern who the people who have crossed the US-Mexico border are which means figuring out if they are actually related to the children, which many of them are not. 
There is also the question of dangerous gangs, drug and arms smuggling, not to mention the wider list of social and economic problems that come along with mass uncontrolled immigration. All of these practical concerns, in my view, pale in comparison to the more abstract concern of the undermining of the rule of law. They are not allowed to cross illegally. It is irresponsible not to secure the borders of a nation, for both the people who live in the nation and the people who are arriving. So look where we've come today. I mean, these Western values are being repudiated and fought by so many forces within the Western nations. Correct. So that's, that's what I meant by things mutate, they evolve and devolve. So in, 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 in the largest classical historical sense, Western values, and I would emphasize, given the limited time that we have, the critical issue is the notion of freedom and freedom based upon individual rights that the individual is protected and and constitutionally and by rule of law for ultimately the minority is the individual the ultimate minority is the individual you know and this notion of freedom is born in the west so western values then becomes universal well you would think you would think that anyone who who hears your words and and understands the nature of freedom and individual rights would embrace them and yet we're finding a repudiation of these things Correct. and that that we're getting into group rights and collectivism and and socialism is becoming popular uh, I know Donald Trump made a big issue of that in a number of his speeches that he he's actually using that word now not something we've seen coming out of quote unquote western leaders in recent years. Correct. So how did that come about? That's a historical discussion. It, none of these things happen overnight. So we have to look and understand that, that in the West there was a development, an evolution or a devolution of ideas that oppose the Western values, that oppose the very ingredient of ideas and thinking that had made the West a unique civilization or a civilization that came to dominate most of the world through the 19th and into the 20th century. Then came a time that the people in the West itself, especially here we are talking about the Anglo world, that is United States and Great Britain, Canada cannot be excluded from it, and Australia and New Zealand, that is the English-speaking world, we had a whole generation came of age in post-World War II environment that came to question those values as a result of a number of things. In the United States, it was the civil rights movement that began in the 1950s. The blacks had been emancipated after the Civil War or during the Civil War in 1863 by Lincoln, and yet in the South, in the United States and the South, Southern states, the blacks were segregated from the rest of the population. So segregation was very much alive. There was, you know, discrimination. There was the KKK. People forget that these were the Democrats, by the way, oh, yes. who, who were engaged almost 50, 60, 70 years after the emancipation in trying to maintain a separate development between whites and blacks in the United States. 
So that was a movement that, that, that began to end segregation, to work towards equality, full equality, and respect for individual rights according to the U.S. Constitution. So that was a movement that began in the 1950s. Then came the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War turned sour, and that erupted, and the generation that went to Vietnam came back angry or frustrated or opposed to the United States. But it was not only in the United States, it was also in Great Britain. It was the end of Second World War, end of the colonial period, the rise of nation states across the world where Britain had ruled. And the ideas that opposed colonialism or empire was now being used to denigrate Western values. And that has now reached a point where Right inside the West, there's a whole movement taking place, and you have raised the issue of Trump. Conrad Black talks about it. This is to denigrate, to delegitimize not only President Trump, but all that he represents. That is the idea that America, which is what Conrad Black was pointing out, America, Great Britain, Canada. We were the force of good in the world, not only negative. It's, there's not only negativity, there was a force of good. Mm. Britain took, Britain had the world's largest empire. The sun never sank on the British Empire, but Britain not only took and made an empire, but Britain took the ideas of Magna Carta, parliamentary democracy, freedom across the world. You know, I was born in India. India was the crown jewel of the British Empire. Mm. Modern India is a product of British Empire. Western values in India did not exist because the Indian values or Hindu values were contrary to the Western values. In the and, 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 yet, and yet you come from India, and I've always found many people who come from India seem to come with those Western values already deeply well, that's ingrained I, in them. That's what I meant. Western yeah. values have a universal content to it. Right. It originates geographically in a certain place in the world. But those ideas have universal content. I mean, the fact that, say, the modern science, say, with, with Newton or Galileo, emerges in Europe, but the ideas of science and mathematics and physics, though it's born in Europe with the people that I've mentioned, Galileo, mm -hmm. Copernicus, you know, uh, Newton, and so on and so forth, to Einstein, while it was geographically, it takes place in Europe, the content of it is universal. The mathematics is universal. The physics is universal. Yes. So similarly, the ideas that originated in the West in terms of democracy, individual rights and freedom has a universal content and people embraced it around the world as Western society, that is Western powers, spread its wing around the world. United States, Great Britain, France and other countries that is born of European or, or European, they took these ideas around the world. But today the irony is that these ideas are being now in a bizarre way being redefined as oppressive. Yeah, you know, as, you mentioned Vietnam was really a turning point in many ways for Americans, wasn't it? And it seems to me as well another big factor in terms of this questioning of Western values and the reversal of it has to do with the fact that we're dealing with new generations of people and young people who did not share this experience of the history that you're talking about and then worse, 
We're not told of it in the proper context. Our schools became socialized in the sense of socialism, okay, and that they weren't taught the values and why freedom of speech is so important. I mean, today freedom of speech is considered almost a negative with people, and that's just bizarre. Do they not know that, that their parents and their grandparents died for these things? So, yes, I mean, the Vietnam War was, in a sense, a tragic experience for the United States. You know, uh, America went to war in Vietnam with all good intention, as it did in Korea, to help save a part of the world from the communist power, from the communist ideology expanding into that region. However, there were local issues involved, and the Americans did not take that into account, and the war turned bitter. It became bitterly divisive, both abroad and at home. You know, it's very interesting. I just, in the last couple of days, watched a 1967 discussion between William F. Buckley and, believe it or not, Robert Vaughn. Not our Robert Vaughn, but Robert Vaughn, the actor who is known from Man from Uncle. Oh, okay. And he had some very strong and specific statements to make about that war. He thought that the U.S. really messed it up and that this was a large part of the cause of the division in the country. Well, that's true. I mean, I mean, it was a, it was a divisive war because after World War II, the West was confronted and the United States as a leader of the West was confronted with the challenge of communism, Soviet Union. Europe was divided. The Soviet army was sitting in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And without the United States being prepared to defend the other half of Europe, Soviet army could have been pushing its way right across to what Hitler tried to do, in the sense, come all the way to the Atlantic, you know, either directly by military might or by promoting its ideology through the Communist Party, subverting those societies and having local communist revolutions, and then the Soviets would have pushed forward. It's interesting you say that because the Robert Vaughn I'm talking about in this conversation seemed to think that there was not a parallel between Vietnam and what was going on in Europe because what was happening in Vietnam was not really a direct threat to America that it was more of, uh, you know, the French left the mess well, there. Look, you, you, Would you, you share you are, that belief? Look, 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 Bob, you're taking up an example of a Buckley no, no, uh, I understand. fight chat with, with Robert Warren sometime in the 1970s while the war was possibly going yeah. on, you know? 60s, yeah. So, you know, I mean, it was a very divisive period and there was a divisive argument going on. We now have the hindsight to look at it. You know, we, sure. have the, we have almost, you know, 45 years to look back on. And America left Vietnam in 1974, 75. So, you know, America could have won that war technically, militarily, but it was not the question of win- winning the war technically and mi- militarily. It was also the question about winning the hearts and minds of, of the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese were engaged in, at least the North Vietnamese were engaged in their own anti-colonial struggle with the, the French. And they had defeated the French and they were wanted to unite the rest of Vietnam, but the South Vietnamese did not want to go under the control of the communists, that is Ho Chi Minh and company, just as what happened in, in Korea. So we have to contextualize. But more importantly, if America had not been there in that very critical period, it is quite possible that the other countries of Southeast Asia would have fallen under the control of the communists. 
The fact that America was there protected Malaysia. There was a massive insurrection of communists taking place. People have forgotten it. We don't have the time. You're raising the issue. We don't have the time to get into it. Understood. So there was a massive, massive uh, communist insurgency in what is Malaysia. There was a communist insurgency in uh, Indonesia. Uh, you know, countries like little Singapore, Thailand, Burma, at that time it was called Burma, all of these had communist insurgencies. And without the presence of America holding back, all of these countries, in one way or the other, could have become communist countries. But today, they're not. They became what is, in the 1970s and 80s, what is called the Asian Tigers. They became the example of free market economy. They were the booming economy. <laughs> I think the irony to what you just said is perhaps the communist insurgency has come to the West and is being found in exactly, our eternal Exactly, exactly. The intellectuals yeah. who oppose the, the war in Vietnam basically won the intellectual argument in the United States, in Canada, in Britain. That is the cultural Marxists, the Gramscian. They penetrated our school systems, our institutions. And that is what Alan Bloom talked about, the closing of the American mind. Shortly before his great success in television and in the movies, Mr. Vaughan announced after devoting a full year's thought to the subject that, quotes, the war in Vietnam cannot be rationalized by moral men. I'd like to begin by asking Mr. Vaughan whether he believes that one of the reasons a, a moral man a cat, quotes, rationalized Vietnam, is that the elections scheduled for 1956 there didn't take place. That would be one of many, many reasons. I would go back to 1954, when we, the United States, installed the puppet regime of Go Dinh Diem. The regime was installed with no referendum or plebiscite from the Vietnamese people, I shall hesitate to mention South Vietnam in this discussion, because Vietnam, as we know, is one country now. There is no government of South Vietnam, there is no nation of South Vietnam, and there is no country of South Vietnam. It is immoral, because I don't believe that we can stop the spread of communism by sacrificing the principles of democracy, which is indeed mm -hmm. what we did do in Vietnam in 1956, when we stopped the elections. Mm -hmm. Now, are you aware of the following statement having uh, been made in 1956, quotes, the United States should never give its approval to the early nationwide elections called for by the Geneva Agreement. Uh, neither the United States nor Free Vietnam was a party to that agreement, and neither the United States nor Free Vietnam is ever going to be a party to an election obviously stacked and subverted in advance, urged upon us by those who have already broken their pledges under the agreement that they now seek to enforce. Am I aware of who said the statement? Yeah. Is that the answer? Uh, no, I'm not. John Kennedy. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 I would disagree with John Kennedy on that statement. Well, I'm, I'm delighted uh, at your increasing uh, emancipation. I've been disagreeing with him for years. <laughs> But uh, I think it is uh, a significant 
that uh, at least John Kennedy, <coughs> who, whose existence and record you so often uh, uh, celebrate, took a point of view diametrically opposed from that which you just finished uh, expatiating. Yes. Does this make him uh, retroactively a non-moral man? It makes him an inaccurate man in relation to his observations in that particular time period. He didn't have the benefit <coughs> of your um, information. He may have had the benefit of the information, but he seems to have uh, organized in a different way than is historically accurate, which might be called at that time a uh, credibility gap also, or an alteration of history, or a misrepresentation of known facts. The United States on July 21st, 1954, signed an agreement unilaterally agreeing that they would not disturb the Geneva Accords. It was signed by Walter Bettel Smith, representing John Foster Dulles in Geneva. And one of the most shameful desertions of power in history, John Foster Dulles left Geneva when he couldn't get his way. And Bettel Smith signed that agreement. It indicated in the agreement that they would not disturb the agreements of 1954, and further, they would sanction any all Vietnamese elections. Therefore, the United States did indeed sanction and agree the 54 Accords. And in addition, there was no government of South Vietnam in 1954. The only person there was the French puppet, puppet at that time, Bao Dai, who originally was the Japanese puppet from 1943 to 1945. Mr. Vaughan, if I read history the way you did, I think I would probably take the same position uh, that you did. I do it, hope it, you it, 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 yeah, it's not only, as somebody said, what, what you don't know, it's what you know that isn't so. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I'm in conversation with Salim Mansour, and we're just talking about how the communist influence has come to the West. You know, we talk about eternal vigilance, don't we? This is a form of what we're supposed to be vigilant against if we are at all interested in preserving our freedoms and the individual rights about which you speak. Uh, Would I be correct on that? Yes, you are, because what happened, as, uh, as, as we were talking a little while ago, is the internal division in the West that began showing itself during the Vietnam War period and after was led by people who were heavily influenced by the cultural Marxists, in particular the writings of a person like Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci, that it is the way that that the Marxists will win, the communists will win, would not be in a physical confrontation with the bourgeois society, but by penetrating its cultural institution, Mm -hmm. principally education, the universities, the colleges, the school, and pushing their Marxist ideas in terms of what is good, what is fair, what is justice, in contrast to the traditional values of the West. You can certainly see what you're talking about on our campuses and our college environments and universities. And is that a portend of what we can expect to come in the future? Because that's, quote unquote, the next generation coming out of those schools and they're going to be coming out of them with those ideas. Well, this is more than a 50-year project of that. We're talking about Vietnam War. It is 50 years ago, you know. But it's reaching a crescendo now that that now the public outside of those those environments is seeing for the first time. I think people have been blind to what's been going on under under their noses. The people who were the agitators, the people who were leading the demonstration, the people who were talking about, you know, the... uh, protection of the Vietnamese people against the American bombers, you know, people like Noam Chomsky and others, they were 
the marginal people, but today they have become the institutional force. They are the presidents of the Ivy League universities and colleges. The ranks of the academia are filled with these people. And so what has happened is everything has been turned upside down. What was the traditional values has been pushed in the argument to the margin to be said that the traditional values are bigoted, the traditional values are racist. To talk about, for instance, traditional marriage seems to be somehow bigoted against the homosexuals and the lesbians. I was going to say even just generally heterosexual relationships are considered uh, abnormal now. (laughs) Exactly. So this is where we have come to. So the new normal is what was and has been the Marxist thinking about basically delegitimizing everything, quote-unquote, as bourgeois counter-revolutionary ideology. And the culture war now is about whether those people who have been declared abnormal and marginalized, whether they can make a comeback. So look at Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson says that There is no way that he's going to use all these invented categories of pronouns Mm -hmm. for a whole host of, you know, LGBTQ individuals. He's still adding letters. uh, uh, (laughs) uh, Letters. That language is basically, you know, male and female, he and she. And, And for that, Jordan Peterson has been greatly criticized. If not, he would have been, you know, uh, taken to um, the courts that he was breaking whatever law that these people are putting together. Now, he's a professor from a university campus. You yourself have just retired from the university campus. Did you see something within that environment that you were working in so long that, that seemed to allow this to happen? It almost seems like the universities should be entrusted with protecting these Western... No, the universities have been... This is, this is, we are talking about universities, social science and law. Yeah. We're not talking about physics and chemistry yeah, and start, mathematics. It's starting, it's starting so, to head into those departments too, though, with global warming and, and the science. Yes, being, it is. Yeah. But still, you know, right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, these are all the work on the humanities and the social sciences and others. And yes, I mean... Look, I mean, the Vietnam War was in the case of uh, United States, in the case of Canada. What was introduced, the idea of multiculturalism, now is a raving reality. And those who talk about Western values are considered bigots and racists. You see, what was multiculturalism? The idea that was put forward that all cultures are equal. All cultures are equal? How is it that all cultures are equal? You know, I think it was a trick of using that language because after the war and and as the West developed, we naturally became not multicultural but multiracial and multiethnic, but of one culture. And somehow the left has twisted and used race and color and ethnicity and turned each of those things into individual cultures, define them as culture, and now it's saying, well, you know, we want to, they almost made it sound like we want to protect what we've always had, and it's called multiculturalism now, well, when they mean well, something totally well, different. Whatever the motive was that moved Pierre Elliott Trudeau to push this idea in the public sphere and policy terms took on a life of his own. It has become almost now a given that multiculturalism means 
that all cultures are equal and has to be treated equally and be respected. If all cultures are equal, then there is no specific value to what you began with. Right. Western tradition, Western culture, Western value that built Canada. And so in terms of multiculturalism, the founders of Canada are seen as racist, as bigots, and they have to be torn down. And that's what is happening. The entire history of Canada or the United States is being deconstructed from the perspective of this multicultural ideology to unravel that history and trash it. That's what we are teaching our children, you see. And those of us or those who are going to defend the founding values of Canada, of the United States, are now attacked as bigots and racists. You know, that's the bizarre situation we have arrived at. But this is the self-inflicted wound that began in the United States with the Vietnam War, in Canada with multiculturalism. It is also the same in, in Europe. So where we are, the, the academics, they talk about intersectionality, sectionality, yeah. you know, that everybody is a victim. Victim of whom? Of the white man. So the only person that you cannot talk about, the only culture that you cannot talk about as valid is the culture of the European. Because the European, the white culture, is oppressive, is misogynist, is anti-immigrant, is anti-indigenous people. And therefore, it is a culture that has no value for what is a multicultural segment of the society. See, there again, I, so think, the la- I think the language is being totally bastardized because really what white means in the eyes of the left is not the color of your skin, but the color of your ideas, and those ideas are Western values. We come full circle. When they talk about you know, white supremacy, they're talking about the supremacy of Western values. And at least that's how, that's how I interpret the bigger picture. And so they've replaced the actual enunciation of the values and tried to reduce it to the color of somebody's skin. And once you're back on that level, well, then you're just talking race and, and group rights and identity politics, which are obscenities to what Western is, what, value. What, what does white supremacy mean? What does it mean in the United States and Canada? We are a constitutional democracy. Right, it means nothing. So it means nothing, but it's just a smear. Exactly. It is to end con- conversation. It's to basically exactly. tell the people right. the in, the public, in, the, in the public square that you have no legitimacy. You know, there is no content to the argument. It is just throwing, as Godwin Law shows, that if a conversation goes on for a period of time, it immediately ends up with somebody saying you are a Hitler. Yeah, you know, it's and, funny. And ending the conversation. It's funny because even the word, the term white supremacy has been used against people like Candace Owens, who's a black woman. Correct. Have you ever had it used against you? I suppose it will be used against me yeah. because, you see, <laughs> uh, uh, coming back to this whole notion of, of Western values, Western culture, as opposed to the rest of the world, I talk from the perspective of India. India is an ancient civilization. But the Indian civilization was built upon the notion of a caste system. It is the British who brought the idea of individual rights and freedom. And the Indian constitution today talks about individual rights and freedom. But the culture 
was built upon caste system. You are born, an individual is born to a particular caste. It is iron bound and you cannot get out of it. So you are an untouchable, you are a Brahmin, you are a Sudra, you know, you belong to a caste and that caste defines you and you're going to remain in that caste from your birth to your death. Yes. Okay. Dinesh D'Souza talks about that and what he found when he came to America was finally I could determine my own future. Precisely. Right. Precisely. So that is the that that is the most hidebound collectivism that you can find anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. You know the class system. Okay. So what was the great contribution of Britain? Britain ruled India. Britain was a colonial power, but Britain brought the idea of justice, of equality of a parliamentary system of government, of a democracy, which is modern India. Modern India has turned its back, at least in legal terms and philosophical terms, on its 5,000-year history. However, you cannot just switch off and on a culture. It takes time. I understand. And so the Indians are struggling with that, okay? And so now you see in the West, the attack is taking place, that the very West, the very idea where of individual rights and freedom emanates from is now suddenly being called supremacist. And everybody is a victim of white supremacy. And you ask them to explain how. How is it that everyone in the continent of North America, whether United States or Canada, is somehow the victim of this white supremacy? They cannot explain it but they say that we are all victims of it, you right. know. Now, of course, you're making, you're making this your personal challenge now, going into the next federal election here in Canada. I thought we might talk a little bit about that when we come back from our next break. I will say that I come at American politics somewhat from the outside as much as from the inside. I remember quite vividly when I was 17 years old and I first saw the United States through the foggy lens of an airplane window. I saw the skyline of New York. I saw the Statue of Liberty. And, and I remember even then that strange sensation that my life from that moment on would be totally different. I felt that I was moving from the margin of the world to the center. And I thought that if I stayed in America, I would be able to be the architect of my own destiny in a way that would be inconceivable, not just in India, but pretty much any place else. In other words, for me, the American dream was not merely a dream of opportunity, get rich, make it, but rather the chance to be in the driver's seat of your own life, to have a destiny not given to you, but constructed by you. tell you something else about the People's Party. But I was originally recruited by the Conservatives. They came to me during a conflict that was happening in my university about free expression and they said, we'd like you to run. And so I considered it and I actually filled out that nomination form. But then when I was meeting with some of the people in the upper levels of the party, the Conservative Party, I said, but here are the things that concern me. I want to be able to say that Canada is a good place. I want to be able to say that I am proud to be Canadian, I am proud of the values that my grandparents and their grandparents brought to this country. I'm proud of the freedoms that we enjoy, 
They said, yeah, it's a bit, that's a bit tense for us. <laughs> Okay, you're wearing your different hat now, your hat as a candidate for the People's Party of Canada under the leadership of Maxime Bernier. You know, I in the past objected to that name, the People's Party of Canada, because of its early connotations with socialism and communism. But now that I see how the, the party has marketed itself in terms of, in a sense, the people versus the elites, as you call it sometimes, that that is where the new division is. Am I typifying the party correctly from how you're looking at it yourself? Well, I mean, it can be referred to in so many different ways. One of the ways is that the people versus the elite, as you have mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the elites have been running this country for the longest while, and they have imposed their values and their ideas on the rest of us, and the rest of us are saying, no, it is enough. We want to reassert what we believe in and we want to talk about what we believe in and we do not want to be marginalized and we do not want to be seen as abnormal people. And so what are we talking about? We are talking about things that, ironically, the conservative party should have been talking about but they are not talking about, which is fundamentally the issue of freedom, the respect for the individual, the question of fairness, the question of accountability, those ideas somehow seems to have gone away from the purview of the elite who run this country. And we are saying, no, we want to bring it back. Because unless we have full freedom to discuss in the public square things that concern us, we are not a free society. So the People's Party, therefore, puts the issue of freedom right at its masthead. It's interesting because parties that are identified in that way today are called populist parties. Right. And I noticed Andrew Coyne had an article in the Free Press recently on July 25th. He said, a new populist party, the People's Party of Canada, has to date caused barely a ripple in the polls. But, you know, this constant smear against the people, even by a columnist like this, you know, he asks, is populism particularly prevalent among the less educated? What is he trying to say there? That, that sounds insulting to the people. Well, there you have it. There, there is the elite. That's the voice yeah. of the elite. That he's was, not a politician. He's a columnist. He, yeah, but, but the columnist, he belongs to the elite. He writes for a paper that is not going to reflect upon whether it's editorially or in terms of columns that... It publishes the concerns of the common people. Who are they? They are the people who are the convoy, truck drivers, you know, the construction workers, the farm workers. So whatever they say is immaterial. You know, it's funny, too, because from my own brief experience, you know, we saw the launch of the PPC here in London a few weeks ago, and they are not the kind of people that are being described as uneducated. In fact, you've got some incredibly talented and well-grounded individuals running for that party. And it just maddens me, like, like yourself, for example, that more people don't know about them and don't know about what their options are. You've you got a big challenge ahead of you here with this political correctness and, and the nonsense we have with social media censorship and deplatforming and the major media, you know, with what Donald Trump called fake news. This is a huge 
battle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we are in the midst of a culture war, and PPC, People's Party of Canada, is being stigmatized by the elite as populist, and populism is considered, in a way, a word that has got negative connotation. Yeah, another another twisting of a word. It seems to me that if something populism, that means it's popular and that the, that's that, the right. that it's for the people, which is which is the whole point, isn't it? That's right. But in their mind, people means a mob, and ironically, it is the left oh, who is yeah, a mob. Yeah, you see, you got that right. Yeah, and out to impose their values by force, if necessary. You know, you look at the whole phenomenon of antifa. They 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 wear mask that they won't show their face yeah. and they engage in violence and intimidation you know they're not willing to have a civil discussion you might disagree with me and I might disagree with you but the whole notion of classical liberalism is that it doesn't matter whether we disagree or, or, or agree what matters is that you have the right to your views and I have the right to my views and we must be able to express ourselves openly so long that we do not engage in coercion and violence. Right. You see, but these people don't care. For them, there's only one view. That's their view. Your view is the wrong view, and therefore your view needs to be eliminated. And what they have done is they try to appropriate words and redefine words according to what their interests is all about. For instance, carbon dioxide is the building block of life. And now, to these people, including our elite, CO2 has become a pollutant, you know. It is creating global warming, and therefore, we have to get rid of CO2. And so, they're going to tax how we breathe. And by taxing how we breathe and what the plants consume, they're going to control us, you know. You can see that in just about every step of the way. You pollute the language, you twist the language, and then you control the mind, you know. Well, of course, that's what a lot of the theme of our whole Just Right series is about, is epistemology, the use of language and Precisely. ideas and, and definitions. Because definitions are to the human mind like what numbers are to mathematics. They define objective things in reality. You can't just make words up. There's nothing objective about the, right. about the elite world that they're living in. What is this whole notion of transgender? A man wakes up one morning and believes that he is a woman, you know? So it is all subjective, cultural relativism, and there is no objective reality, no objective standard, except what the elite say is truth. And those who disagree with the elite or question the elite, they then are the deplorable. Well, PPC, the strength of the PPC is that it is grounded in objective reality. It is grounded in common sense. It is grounded in the values and traditions in which normal people have grown up. And therefore, PPC, in that sense, represent normal people. You know, I'm thinking about the whole issue with the challenge of the media. Given the number of eligible voters who do not vote, for example, in Canada or anywhere, really, should it not be incumbent upon the fourth estate, as we call them, to appraise the voters of all their choices at the polls? And if they do not do so, are they not then themselves in a way guilty of interfering with the election? 
Yes, they are. I mean, there's no question about it. By excluding, in this case, the PPC from the mainstream media discussion, what they're excluding is a genuine party that is now running a slate of candidates right across the country, 338 candidates, that is, for the whole parliament. How many will be elected will depend upon the people, you know. But the fact of the matter is that the media doesn't want to talk about it. The media doesn't want to talk about the policies of the PPC. The media doesn't want to discuss what Maxime Bernier is laying out, the vision that he is laying out. Take the question of immigration. The PPC is calling for a dramatic cut in the numbers of people that officially and legally come to Canada as immigrants and then want stricter control on who comes to Canada. Are they to be vetted? Would they be compatible with Canadian national interests? Would they be compatible with Canadian values? Would they be compatible with needs of Canada? And what is being offered by the other side is either totally ignore the discussion or call the PPC's immigration policy racist. Which is astounding because that policy of the PPC was the policy of this country for many, many years. I can speak from experience. My parents told me because they came from Eastern Europe and were under the Nazi regime that before they immigrated to Canada, my mother said, quote, we had to be denazified. Mm-hmm. Right, which meant they had to go through this vetting process. Exactly. So we we are asking to set up our standards uh, as opposed to what the United Nations wants because you have Justin Trudeau signing the UN Global Compact on Migration and what the United Nations wants is open borders and people can just move in, you know, yeah. and that is in one way take away the right of sovereign nation to make decision as a sovereign nation on the most critical issues that affect the lives of their citizens. So here it is, PPC saying, no, we are a sovereign nation. We will decide who comes into our country, what is the number of people that we want to have coming into our country on an annual basis, and what sort of people we want, yeah, you know. Choosing them on a rational basis. Precisely. Yeah. And this is this is a conversation we need to have. But there you have it, that the mainstream media will not discuss it. However, this is the interesting point. Almost 70% or two-thirds of the Canadian population want precisely what the PPC is talking about in terms of immigration. They want limited immigration. They want numbers cut down. They want, you know, refugees from countries where they are being persecuted and oppressed come to Canada, but we have proper agreement, we have third-party agreements, and we look into these matters, and this is what the people want. And yet, what the people want is not discussed. The policies are made in Ottawa by, not the parliament, but by the cabinet, by the minister, and by the bureaucrats, the unelected bureaucrats. And nobody knows how these policies are made and on what basis these policies are made, because these are not debated in the Canadian parliament. These are not put to the Canadian people in, during the election. We, in the federal party, PPC, we want it in the federal election that this matter be discussed, that the people of Canada have an opportunity to think about it and to vote according to their interests. 
Well, Salim, thanks to you and Maxime Bernier and a slate of PPC candidates across Canada. I think this might be the first time we'll be able to talk about a Canadian party on this show that is just right. (laughs) So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Please welcome Paul Bay. Oh, good evening, folks. Uh, let me just say it's an honor to be here tonight to help celebrate Canadian culture and identity, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> You know, because we have such a rich culture, a multicultural mosaic of yellows, browns, blacks, and whites, and I'm assuming they chose me to talk about this tonight, because, you know, I look, you know, smart. (laughs) 